Welcome to Investor Talk Radio, hosted by Kurt Davis. During the show, Kurt will share tips and strategies as well as guest interviews on how you can become a successful real estate investor. Kurt Davis was a former chef for 11 years until one day had the opportunity to take a leap of faith, left cooking, and became a full-time real estate investor. Kurt has been building his personal portfolio of rental property and at the same time has helped over 500 investors around the globe purchase cash-flowing rental properties. He is a licensed realtor who has achieved multi-million dollar club status, and he is also very active in the local real estate investment club. And now, here is your host, Kurt Davis. Welcome to another edition of Investor Talk Radio. I'm your host, Kurt Davis, and today joining me is Kevin Perk, who is a local real estate investor himself who really kind of specializes in the field of multi-unit investing apartments and things like that. Uh, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kurt. Glad to be here. Now, listen, I know that uh, I have a lot of questions for you. I'm actually excited to have you in here because you're the first person I've brought in to interview about apartments, multi-units, and things like that. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, before we really get into that aspect of the interview, uh, feel free to just, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, maybe where you're from, (laughs) what are... What are, what are some of the things that you used to do before real, real estate investing, that kind of stuff? Well, I used to do a lot of things. Um, mainly, I was a city planner. Um, and that means, if you don't know, that I was the person who handled building permits, zoning issues, uh, subdivisions for new housing, all of that sort of stuff. If you needed uh, code enforcement, that was me as well. Uh, so I'm kind of on the other side of that coin these days. Um, but yeah, if you needed a building permit, if you were planning on developing a new house or a new housing subdivision, you came to see me. I was the guy that made all those lovely rules uh, that we have to follow and things like that. Um, so that's what I did. Uh, I'm originally from the D.C. area, but I moved here to Memphis to go to the University of Memphis, go Tigers. And you just never left. Never left. Memphis kind of sucks you in. Uh, it's a great place to live, I think, and a great place to work and a really good place to invest, as I'm sure a lot of your customers probably can attest to. What was it that, you know, so, okay, so you're, you're doing city planning, mm-hmm. you're doing, doing permits and codes and things like that. Mm-hmm. How, how did... How were you introduced to real estate? What was it or what happened, if you if you can recall? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, like I said, I, I lived here in Memphis for quite a while, but my wife and I did a brief stint in Fort Lauderdale. So we lived down there for a couple of years, and um, we were just hanging out one night. I can't remember what night it was, and uh, I was sitting. I had a big, huge screened-in porch, and I was sitting out there reading a book or something, and my wife, Taryn, who's also my business partner, came in, uh, came out on the porch and said, hey, you should come inside and watch this guy on TV. Uh, he's making a lot of sense, and you should, we, we should, I don't know, you should check this guy out. So, okay, so I wander in, check it out, uh, and PBS uh, is having their fundraiser thing, so it's all of this stuff. Well, the fundraiser back then was Robert Kiyosaki doing his cash flow quadrant, which if you don't know who he is, he wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So, folks out there, if you haven't read this book, you need to check him out. So, anyway, I started listening about the cash flow quadrant i listened to him and yeah he did make a lot of sense and so i went and got the books uh, his books mainly rich dad poor dad and then i started reading everything i could about real estate because i really couldn't see myself sitting in a government office for the next 30 years uh doing what i was doing and um 
I was hooked from then on. I started, uh, that was in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, as I said, and I started going to the Broward County RIA group down there, which is Real Estate Investors Association, and listening to speakers and things like that. and Learning. Learning. Yeah, it, it learning. It's a good way to put it. And uh, we eventually decided to move back to Memphis. We were considering starting to invest in Fort Lauderdale, uh, but we, we sold our house at the top of the market. Got a little cash and came back to Memphis uh, and decided to uh, invest there. And so we came back, and one of the first things we did uh, was continue to learn. We found out that there was a local RIA here, and that was called the Memphis Investors Group, which we started attending faithfully um, and interacting with other investors, learning about the local market, uh, basically still learning. And the first thing we did is my wife and I bought a duplex, and we lived in one side and rented out the other. And that was our first introduction to having a tenant, managing a property, all of that sort of stuff. And I'm going to ask you more about that later on in the interview, but I, that's I still have that duplex to this day. Now, from from the from the time that you from let, let's just say from the time you started going to the RIA in Florida, mm-hmm. learning, mm-hmm. and from the time you you moved back to Memphis and started attending MIG, mm-hmm. what would you say the time was for how long did it take for you to make that first initial purchase? Oh, it was at least a year, year? if not a little longer. Yeah, okay. I, I consider studying and learning about real estate investing um, is basically you're going back to school. Uh, I like to say you're going to graduate school because you're focusing in on a particular thing. And you can't just jump into real estate. I mean, you think, yeah, I'll just boom, 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 jump in, and I can be an investor and and make all this money. No, you really can't. You have to learn a lot about what's going on. Even if, you know, somebody's buying a a turnkey property, say, from you, I would still recommend that they learn how uh, the investment actually works, mm-hmm. you know, how cash flow works and, and what the income and expenses are and all this sort of stuff and what's going to happen and about your market and whether you want to buy multifamily or single family and all, you know, if it's in Cleveland or Memphis or Fort Lauderdale or L.A. or wherever, uh, there's a lot to learn. When and you bu- when you and your wife bought that first duplex, was it, uh, was it I guess, what you would call rent-ready or move-in-ready or did you have to... Uh, make upgrades and repairs? Uh, it was pretty much rent ready. Um, honestly, we paid a little bit too much for it, and that comes back to uh, just ignorance of not being a newbie investor, uh, just not knowing uh, exactly uh, what we should do. But then again, I didn't have the experience at the time to take on a complete rehab project like I do now. Um, so, so it had a tenant in one side, uh, the tenants in the side we were going to move into, their lease was up, and so uh, we told them that you know they were going to have to go. And uh, we did some painting to it, but other than that, it was pretty much rent ready. Sure. Uh, yeah. And and the the rent on the other side uh, covered our you know principal interest taxes and insurance, and so we were applying what Kiyosaki taught us that he was saying that your house is really not an investment, which I'm not so sure I believe yeah. that. Completely, but he was right. Your house is not providing cash flow. You need to go live in something that's providing cash flow and covering your expenses. So that was the idea behind buying the duplex and living in one side. And we lived there for several years. Now, when you made that first purchase, because uh, like I say, it's a more unique concept of what you're describing. Mm-hmm. Kind of, kind of referred to as you know nowadays the the popular tag phrase uh, house hacking. House hacking. But you know, yeah. and, and I'll ask you more about that a little bit later on. But uh, once you and your wife moved into that duplex unit, um, how long would you say that you lived there? Like, where, did you start buying more property 
after that? We did. We did. We started buying more properties while we lived there. Um, and uh, But we lived there, gosh, how long did we live there? I'm going to say three years. Uh, we lived there for three years. And then you mentioned house hacking, and I think I know what that is. Let's see. So what we did uh, is we found a little house that was on the HUD list. Okay. Um, and the HUD list, of course, gives an advantage to owner-occupants. And so we went in and bought this house that was on the HUD list for us to move into, knowing that eventually, probably in a few more years, we would move out of that into another mm-hmm. house and turn that one into a rental, which is eventually what we did, and we still own that. By doing that, we were able to get ahead of all of the investors that were looking to buy this property because it was in a decent area and it was a nice little house. And we were able to get um, a much better financing as an owner-occupant uh, because you get better interest rates and, and cheaper pay, down payment costs and all that sort of stuff uh, if you're going in as an owner-occupant. Um, and, that's, and that basically kind of sums up what, what people I've seen are referring to as house hacking. You mm-hmm. know, it works on four units or less. Yeah. You can get favorable terms and financing. And a lot of people, you know, they're doing exactly that. But they're, they're trying to maybe do it at a little bit faster rate where they'll – I think the minimum requirement is, if correct me if I'm wrong, uh, a year. You have to be in there at least a year. I think that's right, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, so check that, folks, out there before you – uh, definitely do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are people who do that all the time. And there are people who will watch you and make sure because there were people who knew that we were investors. And when we purchased that house as owner occupants, other investors came by and knocked on our door and made sure we were living there. Because if we had moved in, they're going to tattletale. Yeah, they were going to tattletale to HUD, which, you know, they should, they, they thought we were, you know, playing the game with them. Uh, but we honestly did move into it for a few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, But they did come check, and they did make sure that, hey, because they wanted that property. And because of the HUD owner-occupant, we beat them all out. I mean, we could even even bid less than they did, and we would still get it because Mm -hmm. we were owner-occupants. Absolutely. And uh, so we still have that house to this day. And uh, I think it's a brilliant strategy. You know, um, you can get conventional financing uh, from any bank for anything up to four units if you say you're going to live in it. So you could buy a fourplex, triplex, or duplex, or house. Uh, and live in one of the units in a fourplex and have the other three pay for all your expenses. Um, you're probably going to want to live there at least a year or two, and uh, then you can move on and do it again. But back in the day, back then, you could have 10 properties. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I think it's rather difficult to get that now. So you could have 10 loans in your name. Correct. I think it's rather difficult to do that now. Um, I, while it may be possible, I think it's – I don't know of anybody lately who's really been able to do it with conventional – uh, you know, FHA or fantasy yeah. financing. No. Now, are you are you and your wife, are you guys only buying multifamily uh, or, or do you own any single-family homes as rentals? We buy whatever makes sense to buy. Um, and and whatever, whatever opportunity crosses our desk, uh, if it's a single-family, sure, we'll buy that. Uh, if it's a multifamily, yeah, we'll buy that, fourplex, duplex, what have you. Um, yeah, so, I mean, we'll buy any property, and what we generally do is uh, as rent them out. We do do a few flips as well. So, I mean, Re- retail, retail flips? Yeah, retail flips. So those are going to be single families, obviously. Um, but we do also buy single-family homes that are in decent areas for, for rentals. Yeah, sure, we buy those. Now, I, I didn't have this as one of the questions, but I thought I'd want to ask if you'd care to share. You mentioned earlier that your wife Taryn is is in mm-hmm. a sense you're also your business partner. Mm-hmm. 
do you have specific roles as as business partners? Does she have specific roles, or uh, how does how does that work? And as a married couple, also, how 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 does that work? Because I know some people have a philosophy of you know don't mix business and relationships and, and whatnot. But mm-hmm. how does that work for you? And and how do you see her role in this? Um, she's much better with the tenants than I would be, um, and, and maybe that's uh, maybe that's something to do with. Uh, you know, female personality or something like that. I don't want to sound sexist. I just don't know a better way to, to say it. Um, she just She's just as much better at that uh, than I am, you know. Um, I'm better at finding them, fixing them up, and, and maintaining sure. them and that sort of stuff. Um, and it's not like we have we don't have a ton of properties. I mean, we're, we're doing mm-hmm. okay, but we don't have thousands of doors. Uh, sure. And we, uh, so that we don't have a whole lot how do I say this? We don't have a whole lot to do day to day. Sure. Um, and and we do have a, a staff person that we have hired full okay. time, full time, who is kind of our property manager. And you know the phone calls go to her, and, and all of that stuff goes to her. So um, it's a lot more now about. Um, at first, we were both refinishing hardwood floors and painting. You were both in there. Oh yeah, both just in getting there. dirty. Yeah, my wife likes to tell you know, and it's my wife likes to tell the contractors we hire. Hey, I redid thirty floors, so don't think you can get pull the wool over my eyes on on how this is going to be. Sure, and uh, and we both say that. Um, but the goal was obviously not to get into the floor refinishing business, but to pull ourselves out. Sure, uh, more and more, and so we've hired uh, basically a professional manager to kind of oversee the stuff, and then we kind of oversee her and and. Uh, Got to manage the managers. Manage the managers now, and uh, you know, still still deal with crises that come up every day. And, and it's interesting that you just kind of mentioned about that because my, my actual next question was: is uh, do you you know self manage these, or do you use a, a property management company? And you know, which way do you prefer? And it, so, it sounds like you guys were self managing for a long time. We are, and we were self managing for a long time. Uh, it, it's it's. Uh, Property managers are fine. Um, it can be tough to find a good one uh, that will keep your property to your standards. They're out there, but you, you're probably going to have to go through a couple to find it. Don't go with the cheapest one uh, you find. But it, it also makes it much more uh, difficult sometimes to cash flow if you're going to use a property manager, especially... Um, in higher value areas, which is where we tend to invest. Um, you know, I'm not looking at buying in war zones or things like that, um, but I tend to invest in higher value areas, and those values keep cash flow numbers. It squeezes it down, and so it makes it a little more difficult uh, to have that extra cash around for a property manager. So we went with the self-managing route, and, of course, as we grew that game, it gets more and more difficult to where you start to need help. And so we have... Um, like I said, a full-time uh, property manager that works for us, for our property. Just specific. just for you only? Just for us. Now, there are a couple properties, others, that we do manage for other folks, but they're friends sure. or they're somebody we know. Uh, so we're not going out there actively looking for um, to take away other people's properties um, from other management companies. We've thought about doing that, but it's it, it's a lot of different headaches that I just don't think we want to get into okay right now so um it's but we have the organization there if we ever decided to want to do that in the future um so 
And that's how we've ended up when we have a maintenance guy too that, that runs around and takes care of a lot of the little things okay. that I used to do. And of course, you know, that was a hard lesson to learn to get off on another tangent that you have to let people take over these things. Uh, you can't cut the grass. You can't fix the sink all the time. It's tough because, like, in your mind, you're like, you want to do it to right. save the money, but at the same time... You're not saving money. No. You're not saving money. Um, because your time, your most valuable thing you have is your time, and your time is much more wisely used trying to look for the new deal or, you know, running your business and sure. trying to make it more streamlined. Sure. Um, now, was it good that I refinished floors and learned how to fix sinks and all that? Yes, because I can troubleshoot and uh, I can, you know, these contractors, you know, you can kind of ride over them and say, now nah, what are you doing? And so. especially if you're self-managing and there's a maintenance issue, yeah. oh yeah, you, uh, folks, uh, the train is coming by right now if you can hear that. <laughs> Will it blow its whistle? Yeah, I, I may. I hope so. I haven't yeah. been able to filter out the train yet, but um, uh, we're a multimodal community here hey. in Memphis. And, uh, <laughs> so. so, but you know that it is good that you know how to do that. So if you had to do, go over and quickly do a maintenance uh, call and you can do it yourself, you're you're not paying someone a, a service call. Yeah, and that happens. I mean, you know, you can. I don't know if you're going to be the size we are. Um, if you can ever completely take yourself out of it. I mean, the, you know, I think back a few years ago, a young uh, a lady called one of our tenants, and it was actually really, really cold out and said there was a constant drip of water coming through her ceiling, and it was like, you know, midnight. We were just kind of getting ready to go to bed, and, you know, that phone call came through, and it's like, well, we, you know, it's really cold. If that means a pipe burst, I need to go over and check it out. Check it out, because, I mean, that can, it can lead to, you know, Right now, it might be a $100 fix, but if I let the water run all night, it might be a several thousand dollar fix sure. tomorrow. So there are times where you just kind of have to, you know, bite the bullet and go check it out. <laughs> and funny story, what it was is one of my, oh, less competent tenants, we'll say, had gotten drunk, passed out, and left the sink running. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> so it was overflowing onto the floor. Oh, and, um, man. And, uh, needless to say, she was rudely awakened. But anyway, that's but no, but now you have people, other people that will take those calls. Yes, generally, generally. Uh, but still, uh, sometimes uh, the calls will go. But then sometimes, I mean, you might get a call from the property manager. Hey, this is happening. Uh, you know, you might want to go check this out, or you know, we will try to. Uh, you try to farm that out as much as you can. But every once in a while, it sometimes it's going to rope you back in a little bit. And sure. It's just because you want to protect your investment. Correct. And sometimes, you know, the best thing to do is to go over there right now. Um, that's another thing that I did early on is I bought most of my stuff within about a 10-minute drive of where I live. So everything's really close to me. I'm not driving around all day. Is, that, is that still the case? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, everything's within about a 10-minute drive of me and my office, the property manager office is. Okay. So everything's really close. That's one of the reasons I'm kind of focused on where I am and uh, I just didn't want to I mean you can you can invest all over the city as you guys do but uh, you know for me if when I was self-managing I didn't want to be driving 20 minutes to Whitehaven and then got to go up to Raleigh yeah and then out to East Memphis or back downtown or something yeah no so anyway I feel I know the pain trust <laughs> me I get to a point where I'm burnt out driving around town oh yeah yeah um, 
you know, one of the things I was going to ask you is, is what is your smallest multifamily unit, which I guess I'm going to assume is a duplex that you still technically own, but... Yeah, that would be a yeah. small multifamily uh, that I own. The largest we have is, an eight, is a couple eight plexes. Okay. So, I mean, I don't own huge complexes where you would have, uh, you know, a manager on site and all that sort of stuff. That's kind of for the big boys. Uh, the insurance companies buy those and, and whatnot. Um, but, uh, you know, we do own several multifamily, fourplexes, duplexes, triplexes, eightplexes. Uh, but we also own several single-family houses as well. Okay. You do own four, in theory, cash flow purposes. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, fantastic. And actually, the houses uh, cash flow very well. So do the, so do the multifamilies. Um, you know, the houses are unique in that, A, you can get the tenants to take care of the yards, a lot of times so you don't have that expense coming in and generally all of the utilities are going to be paid for by the tenant whereas with a multifamily you're generally only going to have one water meter so generally oh, yeah. gotcha okay so generally you know the landlord's going to have to pay for the water which then includes the sewer which is that also- how is that how it is for you with your with like your eight plexus yes. yeah okay that's interesting See, that's something good to know because that's one case. Do you, do you have any multi-units where, the, where, in theory, they're all in a separate meter? Uh, I will not. I made the mistake of buying some early on that had just, say, one electric meter and one gas meter, and then you try to, you know, they call it a RUBS, which is, uh, I can't remember what that acronym R-U-B-S stands for. But anyway, you're, you're basically trying to bill the tenants based on their square footage. Oh, boy. What, uh, you know, the gas bill for this month or the electric bill for this month. And every, I didn't use that much gas. I didn't use that. He's running this dryer. So it's just, it's Everyone's pointing fingers. Oh, everyone's yeah. getting upset. It's always a pain in the but so uh, you know i either look at does the properties have separate electric and gas meters you know a single water meter is okay because the water is not very expensive and you can just put that into your pro forma uh, when you're figuring it out but gas and electric it's really really difficult and it can be really expensive in the summer when everybody's running their their air conditioner sure plus they don't have an incentive to conserve. I mean, if I'm paying the bill, I mean, I've gone over in the wintertime and the windows are open and the heat's running full blast. Sure. You know, because, I mean, what the hell? I'm not paying for it. They right. are. So, and what do I do? You know, am I going to go over there every day and yell at them? I mean, that's just, uh, you know, that's a, it's, a, it's a headache. So the property I have like that, they do generally well, um, but it is just another problem that I don't need to take on. Sure. So... Um, would I love if my 8-plex had 8 water meters? Yes, that would be great. But it's not that huge of expense where it makes sense to pay to put in and try to separately plumb out. You just it can't do it. So. Sure, sure. Very interesting. Something that, you know, myself uh, included, probably a lot of people don't think about that. No. And, you know, there was some controversy uh, in some larger units here in town where the landlord did not pay the water bill. And basically, you know, MLGW, which is Memphis Light, Gas, and Water, it, you know, came in and turned off the water to the whole complex. Boy. So, but it wasn't the tenant's fault because, you know, they had paid their rent, and, of course, the rent is supposed to pay uh, for the water bill. Sure. And the landlord just didn't pay it. So, you know, if you need to pay the water bill because, I mean, now that landlord, you know, he got in a bunch of trouble for that because now the units are uninhabitable. You're going to get Judge Potter, who's our environmental court guy come down hard on you and you know the people are going to have to leave and then your property is just going to sink so if you think you're saving a little bit of money by not paying the water bill 
yeah, you're going downhill quick. <laughs> so, but yes, that is something to consider. I always look when I'm out looking at properties to buy, you know, do you do that first walk around? I always look at the meters. You know, I look on the street, how many water meter caps are there? Sometimes duplexes will have two. And so it's like a bonus. Okay. Yeah, if you find that. I have a couple like that. So sure. I don't pay any any water uh, like that. But most of the time, duplex, triplex, fourplex, and higher, they're going to have one water meter coming in. Uh, and you just have to take a look at that. And, uh, yeah, go find the meters, folks. Go look in the back, see how many gas meters there are, see how many electric meters there are, and all that sort of thing. Inter- uh, interesting. Oh, yeah. Interesting. How Now, how... How does a purchase, uh, excuse me, how does a person go about purchasing a multifamily unit? Now, obviously, we've kind of already talked, you know, in theory, someone could do house hacking on mm-hmm. four unit or less. Um, in theory, they could also do 20% down, 20, 25% down conventional financing if it's four units or less. But I'm more interested in the, let's call it five, six, seven, eight plus stuff kind of like what you have. How mm-hmm. how does somebody go about purchasing that in, in, in regards to what types of financing are available? You know, what, what do terms look like that for? Because I'm going to guess it changes. Oh, it definitely does. Um, as we said earlier, you know, a, a one, two, three, or four-unit property, you can get conventional financing on. And that means you can get an FHA loan or a Fannie Mae-backed loan. So you could walk into, you know, National Bank of Commerce or, um, you know, any bank that you happen to use, First Tennessee, and say, hey, I want to get a loan for this, and, and they'll do that. And what that means is they're, they're not going to hold that loan. First Tennessee is not going to hold that loan in their portfolio in the bank. They're going to sell that to FHA or Fannie Mae, which are government-backed uh, agencies. And so you can do that. Now, uh, you can only do that, as we said, for a few properties, probably four or five, I think, now is probably the most you're going to be able to do. And then they're going to say, we're not going to give you any more of these loans. Um, so then if you want to keep building your portfolio, you're kind of screwed because mm-hmm. uh, you had this nice funding line through and now you can't get it anymore. If you want to buy properties that are five units and above, again, it's a whole different kind of financing. Freddie and Fannie and FHA are not going to back those, so you have to get what's called, um, if you're going to do bank financing, it's called a portfolio loan generally, which means the bank is going to hold that loan in their portfolio. It's going to be an asset to the bank. They're not going to sell it. And generally what you want to do, going to First Tennessee or the bigger banks, you're not SunTrust, anything like that. You're not going to find financing from them. Um, they reserve that kind of financing for the big boys, uh, the real estate investment trusts. Millions and millions, millions of and, yeah, dollars. Yeah, millions of do- tens of millions of dollars. You know, They're just not going to – you're not worth their time. So what you want to do is you want to go find a local small bank. You know, there's many of them in every major city. You know, they've got three or four branches, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. And you just want to go talk to, you want to knock on doors and talk to the vice president of commercial lending. You know, where he might have a slightly, he or she might have a slightly different title. Um, show them what you've done. You've got to put together a bank book of, of what you own, who you are, personal financial statement, taxes. They're going to want to see all this. It's almost like a resume. Uh, it is a resume, very much, but it is a very enhanced resume because it's going to have all of your personal financial information laid out for them to see and have pictures of how pretty your properties are and, and how you manage them and showing them that, hey, you're a good risk. Mr. Banker, you are a good risk to lend me money on continuing to expand my portfolio. 
into five and, and eight units or whatever you want to do, or maybe even a 24-unit apartment building, which is, you know, they're around town. Um, the terms on those are not as good as you get with an FHA or a Fannie-backed loan. You know, the interest rate is going to be higher, three or four or five percentage points. So right now, what's an FHA loan? Three percent? Yeah. Something like that. So, you know, your 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 portfolio loan is probably going to be somewhere between five and seven, depending on how much you've, you've done. And you can forget about the 30-year fixed rate. Um, you'll get a five-year fixed rate, generally, with a balloon payment at the end. So that means that after five years, the bank can call the loan. Uh, and it's usually going to be amortized quicker, usually 15 or 20 years. Sure. So the payments are higher. Um, but... What type of down payment have you been seeing on these types of loans? They're generally going to want about 20%. Now, and one thing I've done um, so that I don't have to come up with 20% is I'll bring in a second mortgage holder. So glad you're bringing this up because I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, so I'll bring in a second mortgage holder, which is a private investor. And that's another way. We'll, we'll get to private investing. Yeah. So, you know, a private investor, you just go out and say, hey, Kurt, I've got this deal. Can you give me 20% down? And I'll pay you X interest over over X many years, you know, with a balloon payment at the year. Or you can negotiate whatever sure. terms you well, want. Yeah. Um, the difficulty there is a second lien holder uh, no bank is going to loan the money unless they have first position, and so a second lien holder, if you mess up, they're wiped out. Sure. You know. So, so there's a little risk on that private lender there is opting a, to give you the down payment money, right? So you have to really, you know, a you need to tell your private lender that, so they mm-hmm. fully understand what's going on, and that they have a little bit of risk, and so, you know, but obviously, hopefully, you're not yeah. out looking to hopefully get foreclosed on. Well, and this and this is where you know someone like yourself. You're an experienced investor. You, you already own several units. Mm-hmm. For that person, that should kind of, in in essence, maybe lighten the risk for them to, to say, "Hey, this guy's got a lot of it does experience." It, it's 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 a personal thing, and you know, I often get the question, "Well, where do you find these private lenders?" Well, you know, I found them at MIG. You know, there are people there. There are people there looking uh, who have money who are looking for a place to put it because they don't want to put it in the stock market or they don't really know uh, what to do with it. Um, and you just have to get to know people. You know, I've written about blog posts about you got to get off the wall. You know, you can't go to say the Memphis Investors Group meeting and just hang out on the wall. I mean, I know it's hard at first, but you got to get out, shake hands, meet people, get to know people. Because by talking and interacting, um, that's how you get to know people, and people are going to start to get to know you and feel like you're comfortable. You're you're a decent risk. Um, you know, some of my racquetball buddies, I've have, have lent me money, um, some family members, you know, obviously you know sure. them, be careful dealing with family. That could be a whole uh, ball of worms or, you know, yeah. if, if, if it comes through. Whatever you do, always make it professional. Always file correct paperwork. You know, everything's recorded at the registrar's office. It's all, you know, deeds and there are, there are actual notes Recorded and all this stuff, and you know, no matter who you work with, it's always a business decision, even among friends. Um, well, the exciting, th- you know, it's, it's, it's I'm, I'm thinking about this while you're talking, and it's like, you know, you, in in theory, for the most part, it almost kind of, and, and I hate using this term because it's it's overused a lot, but in theory, you've kind of created a no money down scenario in a sense by bringing in that private lender for the down payment. It is, and you need to make sure that your bank is okay with that. Sometimes the bank is going to um, 
want you to have actual skin in the game, uh, which, you know, we've done that too. You know, we've had to put money down. So it just depends on the bank and, and you know. But as, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's a chicken and an egg thing. You know, how do I get started if I don't, you know, have this experience? I need the experience to do it. You know, you just got to start slow. I mean, you can't go out there and start buying up everything. Well, you can, um, but it, you know, it, it's a lot harder, and you have to hustle a lot more. Um, or you could just find private lenders to fund your whole deal. Sure. I mean, I mean, know, it, we've done that as well. Uh, it's a little bit harder because private lenders generally like churning their money, and they want in and out faster. They don't want to hold a note for five years, sure, or or a long period of time. But there are people out there who will do it. You're just going to have to search a little. And, and I don't own any multifamily. All all our 20 properties that my wife and I have are all single family, mm-hmm. and, we, and that's how we purchased ours. You, you know, call it the no money down strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, turn and burn, buy them as is, fix them up, refinance, pay the private lender off. Usually within two months or less. Yeah, yeah. But that that that's great when you can get the loans easy. Yes, yes. You know, when the money's flowing like it is right now, uh, as we sit here on June 22nd, 2016, the money is flowing. Now, uh, the boom times are back. Uh, you know, I'm sure you're seeing this. There's, Absolutely. The competition to find properties right now is much, much stronger. Um, and it's probably harder. I know it is for me to find anything right now. And we're not back at 2007 levels uh, where I'm just sitting on the sidelines watching Everybody else do stupid things, mm-hmm. but um, you know it's it's getting there. It's getting there. When you're when you're when you're looking at a multifamily unit to buy, um, how do you determine if it's a good investment? I mean, do you look at it from a standpoint of I need to get X amount of dollars per door in cash flow, or are you looking at a, the overall cap rate? I mean, what what are some of the things that you personally look at to kind of determine because uh, you know like i say a lot of people they can go on LoopNet, they can go on mm-hmm. CryLite commercial or, or or whatever and you know we'll see these multi-units for sale and you'll see someone's got a, a 12 or 24 unit over here and it's price x but how 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 does the how does somebody look at that price and know if that's a good price or not i am always concerned about cash flow i have never once used cap rate I mean, I know what it is um, and, and all of that. I've never really had a banker ask me about cap rates. Um, I mean, that's a number that's thrown around a lot. You know, you'll see a, a thing on LoopNet, well, 8% cap or all this. Well, great. Um, I look at cash flow, and my minimum has always been generally 150 bucks per door per month cash flow. And that means that, you know, I'm getting $1,000 in rent. And all of my expenses, including principal interest taxes, insurance, maintenance, some vacancy allowance there, and a little bit, putting some away for future, uh, is no more than $850. Okay. So uh, that $150 per month is what I used to put gas in my car and food on my table and pay my mortgage on my house and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And that's generally the standard we've always used. Um have I gone above or below that some? Yeah, sure, you know, but that's kind of the benchmark that I try to look at. Um, it makes it tough because there's a lot of people that'll buy for less. Um, I can remember back in 2007 when we had people from L.A. coming over here and buying all this stuff, and they were going, yeah, I'm happy with a 1% cap rate. Well, 1% means you're getting a 1% return on the money you're invested, so, I mean... 
Hard if, to beat that. Yeah, <laughs> if you're if you want to buy at a one percent cap rate, great. I'm going to let you do that because I'll pick it up later when you get foreclosed on, which I can almost guarantee you that's what's going to happen because there's just you're just not going to have the money and you're buying at the top of the market. When it collapses, you're not going to be able to maintain it, and that's what happens. Um, perfect example. I'll give you a quick example. So there was a duplex that I eventually bought. Uh, it was sold to a California investor for $210,000. I picked it up at foreclosure uh, for forty six, dollars and uh, the bank even got foreclosed on. The bank made so many bad loans that Goodness. Um, an investor from Nashville came in and paid cash for that bank. Wow. Yeah, so you talk about money. I mean, yeah. <laughs> people have money. They're out there. I mean, they're buying banks. So the thing about private investors, to get back to that a little bit, is don't ever underestimate who has money. Don't judge a book by its cover. You just never know. You just never know. And um, you should always be out and thinking about that as you meet new people and they ask you what you do. Well, you know, have a little quick, they call it an elevator speech. Um, well, you know, I have run properties and, uh, you know, we buy you know, smaller multifamily properties here in Memphis and sometimes we you know use money from folks like you you know people like you and uh, you just throw that out there sure. see if they bite you know it's inter- it's interesting because you know uh, a lot of new investors when they get started you know they have a hard time finding private lenders or if they do find a private lender it, it's very rare that that private lender is going to want to make somebody who's new with less experience a loan but as you know, individuals like you and I, especially with the type of business that we have, we have more private lenders. It's 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 sometimes it's nerve wracking making sure that we have enough of their money out being put to work. Right, and you know, I get you know, it's it's to the point where people are asking me now, hey, find a deal, I'll fund it, and it's like, well, you know, they're just not they're just not out there. You right. want to, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's. Either the deals are flowing or the money's flowing, but rarely is it ever both at the same time. Interesting. Rarely is it ever both. And that's because, you know, when the market collapses, uh, everybody loses their money and freaks out. Um, You know, all the money they had in the stock market or wherever gets wiped out. Or they, you know, they pay $210,000 for a duplex that gets sold for $42,000. So, I mean, they're wiped out. Uh, the money goes away, but then the properties are there. You know, the banks are trying to unload all this stuff that they just, they completely screwed up on. And uh, so uh, that's why cash flow is so important. You know, I don't care if the value of the property goes down to zero. If I'm still making $150 per Correct. month per door, I'm fine. Um, and I can pay the mortgage and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, it would take a real calamity um, you know, like a severe earthquake here. Let's knock on wood. No, yeah. That never happens. <laughs> um, you know, to, before it would really start to. Sure. Aside from, you, you know, your criteria of $150 a door, you know, what is there anything else that you factor in besides uh, cash flow when evaluating uh, either single family or units? Like, like things such as, you know, location or what's the parking or site supervisor. I know that you said that you don't have any units like that. But mm-hmm. when you're evaluating that property, aside from just trying to figure out how you're going to get $150 a door, what are other factors that you take into account when you're looking at the, the unit? Well, repairs, obviously, and upgrades. Uh, that's a big one that you throw in there. A, a lot of the properties, honestly, that I buy are distressed, um, and they need a lot of work. And so, obviously, that goes in there because uh, you're buying them at a discount. And so, that's a big factor. But when, other- you, when you renovate them, do you try to make it so that, like, if regardless of the units, do you try to make it so that every unit looks the same? 
No, um, because where I'm at, I'm in a unique area uh, where all the properties are different, and it's really hard to make them look the same, and people like the uniqueness of the properties. Uh, so and I guess what you're asking, do I use the same countertop? Do I use the same tile? Do I use the same uh, faucets and whatnot? I try to to some extent, and we try to use the same paint colors and things like that on the inside so that we kind of know where they are. Um, but honestly, trying to put the same bathroom vanity in the same, it just isn't going to work because sure. everything's different. The kitchens are different. They're laid out different, uh, what have you. And it just depends on what I find when I go in and, and get mm-hmm. it. Um, but um, I want hard surfaces. I like hardwood floors. I don't put in carpet unless it's an absolute, you know, there's nothing else I can do. Sure. Um, you know, I have some some standards I like to do for the bathroom, such as subway tiles and things like that, uh, that I'll generally will put in. Sure. So, um, otherwise, it's just well, let's see what Home Depot has on sale or or what I can get, you know, for a decent price today. Um, but uh, no, and and now in my eight plexes and things like that, yeah, we will try to put the same. Sure. faucets and whatnot around because that makes a little sense you know when an o-ring goes you know which one it is and you can just go fix that sort of thing but um you know if i had a hundred unit building of course yeah, it would be the sure. same vanity and the same the same the same the same as you go through so um but no with what my portfolio it's very difficult to do that well what would you say some of the the more rewarding things are about uh you know being an being an investor not necessarily just whether it's in relations to single family or multifamily, but mm-hmm. what are what are some of the rewarding things that you find being an investor uh, in in general? Mm-hmm. In general, um, well, you get your time back, and you're in much more control of how you use that time. I'm not going and sitting um, at my planning desk from nine to five or nine to six, and then having to go to night meetings and deal with all of that. So. I have my time, and I can use my time as I see fit, and I think that's the biggest advantage. Well, it's, it's, it's exciting because, you know, like I said, your wife's your business partner, mm-hmm. so I'm going to assume that there came a time with however many, in theory, doors or units you have that the, the income allowed you to, to both leave your professions at the time. Yeah, when we moved back to Memphis, um, so she went into this full-time, and, and ran the business full-time for, gosh, three years? Three or four years. I can't remember exactly uh, how long. And we built up the portfolio and built up enough properties um, that it replaced my income. And so that's when we decided, you know, that I would be able to, to get out to... That's fantastic to, to hear. my job as well. And, uh, you know, that was over a dozen years ago, so we're still chugging along. What, are, what are, well on the flip side you know what are what are some of the challenges that you face also as being an investor well what are, what are, what are some challenges or hurdles or things like that that you either can't avoid or things that just come up that you know maybe someone who is not at your level yet would would have no idea about well I, I'm not going to say it was easy I mean it's hard um, you know everything falls on you uh, you're in charge now uh, so if you sink or swim it's because you either did or did not do uh, what you needed to do and I mean there's no going 
and passing the buck off to somebody else. When thing, when thing, it's you know, and that's that's interesting. You say that because when things go wrong in your business, you don't have anybody to call or get upset or, or complain to. Right. No, it's it's my fault uh, if something goes wrong, and you know we've had to learn a lot of hard lessons uh, that way, and you know we've you know we've lost money, you know obviously because, and you just have to learn it. Um, a lot of times by by doing now and that's one of the we mentioned mig earlier that's one of the great things a couple great things about mig is excuse me a you can go to mig and cavort with other investors who are going through the same thing you do so you know you kind of can hang around the water cooler so to speak and talk shop and say well this tenant was doing this oh well i had a tenant that was oh my tenant you know just you know so such and such or you know this contractor just did this or you know, what do you do about X, Y, and Z, that sort of thing. Uh, and then B, you can hear from other investors who've been there before, will tell you, give you, you know, free advice, you know, don't do that or do this, or, you know, here's the way you need to think about that, or here's what you need to, here's where you need to go with that. And and I have learned so much just by attending MIG, and, you know, you were a part, you were on the board at MIG, I eventually became the president of MIG, um, Thankfully, that's gone. <laughs> Pass that on to other people. Yeah. Uh, no, I had a great time doing it. Um, but, I mean, that just shows I, I believed so much in the organization that I you know, sure. gave back. Um, and I've always had the heart of a teacher. That's another thing you asked earlier. Um, what I did, I've always uh, taught uh, at college level, and I still do to this day. And so I, MIG is a very organization that's all about teaching people how to get into real estate investing so since i got so much out of it i feel like i have to give back and and teach folks by doing podcasts like this uh and and doing things at mig and just being at mig because now i'm one of the more experienced folks you know and people are coming to me and asking well how do you get started what is you know so and so i'm giving back in in that way as well do you think someone should buy single-family homes first before getting into multifamily, or, or do you have a thought or opinion on that? So, you know, sometimes sometimes I'll see or, or talk to people, and they'll say, "Oh, I really want to. I'm new. I'm brand new. I don't really know much, but I just really want to start getting involved in apartments, or you know, vice versa. They might want to do single-family. Do you have a, any any opinion on that? I would not go out and buy a large apartment complex as your first property. Um, it is such a steep learning curve dealing with tenants and managing that property. If you're going to do it on your own, you definitely don't want to do that. Now, how large is large? I don't know because it's going to be depend on you and your personality and what you want to take on. Even if you want to turn it over to a management company, you're not going to understand all the ins and outs and if you are are not getting screwed by the management company, which there are ones out there that will do that and maybe not intentionally do that but you know take a few nickels here and there which add up now that being said would i buy a fourplex first and live in one side yeah probably would Mm -hmm. do that would i buy a single family house as a rental in this market in memphis yeah Mm -hmm. i think i think that's uh, certainly viable options there are advantages and disadvantages to each with a single-family home, you know, you got your tenant that'll cut the grass, most likely, uh, so you don't have the lawn care expense. Uh, all the utilities will be paid by them, so that's another thing. And in a lot of places in this town, you can get single-family homes fairly inexpensively, and they'll mm-hmm. cash flow very well. As you know, you've mm-hmm. built your whole business about doing that. And on the plus side, 
to single-family home, when you come to sell a single-family home someday, 5, 10, 15 years down the road, your market for buying a single-family home is completely different from the market trying to sell a fourplex or an eightplex. A single-family home can be sold to a single-family occupant, which they'll generally pay higher prices and things like that. Your market is completely different. The only person that's going to buy another fourplex, you might find somebody who wants to live in one side, but mostly it's going to be an investor who's looking for what? A deal. Sure. You know, or looking for cash flow. So your appreciation with multifamily is not going to be as high as it might be with a single family. Of course, that's going to depend on the economy and everything else. But on the flip side, when a single family house goes vacant, it's vacant. There's no money coming in. With a fourplex, one unit goes vacant, you got three still paying the bills. Um, you've only got one roof over four people. You've got one hot water heater, maybe, with four people. Um, so, you know, you've got a lot more systems under one roof sure. that you can spread out those expenses are. On the flip side, you've got four tenants who all have one thing in common, you. Mm-hmm. So, and again, if you buy a 100-unit building, they've all got one thing in common. You. You. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a trade-off. You have to know what you want. You have to know the differences there and just know yourself as to what you're comfortable dealing with. If you're trying to start out, start small, fourplex or smaller, single-family houses are great. Don't go buy 10 of them at once. Buy one, see if you like it, because you know you may hear all this great stuff about real estate investing and then get into it and go, I hate this. You know, it's, it's funny that you mention that because uh, we just had an, an investor in our office today, literally about an hour and a half ago, mm-hmm. a gentleman from New Zealand who purchased five or six homes back in the you know the time frame when, when, when foreigners were buying and it was really mm-hmm. hot 2011 12 and uh, he he's here and he's looking to sell them simply for the and it's not because they're they're going sideways on him it's just that he lives so far away that for his personality he doesn't like the fact that he can't come check out the home or check on repairs and whatnot and you know we're, we're looking to potentially buy him from him so it's 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 and that gets back to it's all about your personality I mean I don't know how it's, it's got to be – it takes a certain type of person uh, in the other hemisphere, you know, basically halfway around the world to buy rental properties or investments here in Memphis and, uh, and then completely trust somebody. Not I'm not sure. trying to say you guys yeah. aren't trustworthy. I'm just saying then completely trust somebody. I'm know, Honestly, I'm them. actually kind of shocked that and there are thousands th- th- that, that happens, would. yeah. I don't know if I could do it or not. I'm not sure either. Uh, I like to be able to ride by. I said everything's within 10 minutes of my house. So when I'm out tooling around just going to the store or Home Depot or something, I pass by several of them all would, the time. Would you believe that one of the houses that I own that I bought back in 2012 in the Raleigh-Bartlett area, mm-hmm. I've never been to. I've never, I've it. never been to it. I've never, I've purposely never gone. It's, it's your little thing. You just. <laughs> it's 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 the only house I have that I've done that, and and I don't know why. Because I've gone this long, I'm gonna try to see sure. how long I can, you know. Because like I say, you know, our clients from California, they just can't go by that. Some of them have been ne- never seen their properties. And that's probably a good thing for you because now you get the feeling of what that's like. I know exactly what it's like. I have to rely on my management company that they're going to do what's right by me. And, you know, you know that's one thing that's a little bit different than you and I is that, uh, you know, of the 20 properties I have, I do use a management company mm-hmm. for all of them. Yeah. And it's just that's because I've obviously, you know, what I do here mm-hmm. is just a little bit different than what you do. But, you know, at, at some point in time, would I like to take over the management of them? Sure. Mm-hmm. But I'm just not there yet. Yeah, sure. What um, 
you know, we're kind of wrapping this up here. We're getting down here. Uh, what, what would maybe be some final thoughts or comments or suggestions you would have to someone who's listening to this who's new and, and they do have some interest in, in in investing in general, maybe kind of along the lines of multi-units? That's, you know, that's because that's kind of your niche, your mm-hmm. forte. What, what would your what would your advice be to that person? Um, follow the advice that we've outlined in this podcast. Uh, you're not going to be able to jump right into it. I'll take that back. Some people can. Most people can't. They've got to learn and educate themselves. And that takes a little bit of time depending on who you are and your personality. But I would read everything you could get your hands on. Go to your local RIA meetings. Uh, the National RIA website uh, in RIA.org or whatever they are uh, will tell you if you have one in your city. Uh, most major cities are going to have one. Go because they're they're good educational experiences. You can meet with other people, learn about your market, and go from there. And then I would start small. You know, we did the buy a duplex, live in one side, uh, rent out the other, test the water, so to speak, see if it's going to work, see if you like it, because you may not like it. You know, you may you may find that this is completely not for you. And you and I have both seen a lot of people come to MIG, and then we never see them again. Sure. You know, I mean, the, so they come, they test the waters, and then they they never come again. Real estate is a great investment tool. It's a wonderful way to build wealth. It's a it's an awesome way uh, to give you your time and give you more control over your life. Uh, but you have to work at it. It's not nothing in this life is easy. Uh, that's a worth of any value. So don't think and and don't get duped by. Uh, there's not too many late night TV guys anymore. I don't know. I don't watch TV. I don't. Much. I don't see them too often anymore. But you know there are there are sharks in the water. You have to be careful and and you have to be careful of. You have to think to yourself: Are they selling you a dream, or are they selling you something practical? Now, there are a lot of people out there who are selling something practical, but then there are a lot of people who will show you the pictures. Hey, I'm just sitting on the beach and doing this. <sighs> yeah, you yeah. get to go to the beach, but, man, it is really, really hard to run your entire business yeah. sitting around on the beach doing nothing. It's just it's not really feasible. So it's nice to dream like that, but don't be careful. Don't be sold the dream and then get into it, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, there's some work to be done. And you can get there to where your dreams are fulfilled, but it's not going to happen overnight. And that's probably the hardest thing to impart to some people sometimes. Now, you write a lot of blog articles Mm -hmm. that are published online, but you also have your own website. What's the name of that site? How can can somebody find you online and and get involved with your blogs and and your podcast that you're doing? Oh, sure. Uh, I have a website. It's called smarterlandlording.com, and thank you for allowing me Mm -hmm. to mention it, um, where I generally try to post fairly regularly. Of course, life gets in the way and and job gets in the way of doing that. But I've got several hundred posts up there about my life in in real estate investing. And uh, I also post at biggerpockets.com. I'll give them a little plug. They've been good to me as well. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I couldn't stop talking about it. When I, I don't know about you, but I always tell new people, especially when I'm at MIG, mm-hmm. uh, leading a getting started right or whatever I'm doing, I always tell new people who are there, they need to do two things. They need to, number one, sign up for MIG and become a member mm-hmm. right now, and then they also need to get on Bigger Pockets. Yeah, Bigger Pockets is a, a wonderful site. I guess they're the largest real estate site, uh, education site out there today. Um, 
Um, they've done a really good job uh, building themselves up uh, over there, and they keep expanding. So I write there, as do several other people. Uh, but my main site, again, is smarterlandlording.com. Go sign up, become a, um, become a member there. And well, you, you have you have a lot of there's a lot of good tips, and mm-hmm. I think you know I was on your site the other day. Don't you have like some downloads and yeah, there's things, yeah, there's forms. There's I mean you can find um, all kinds of, of different things that I put up about. There's clauses you should have in your lease. I've got podcasts I've done with other other investors as well. Um, there's books I recommend reading that have really helped me. Um, yeah, you can you can hopefully you can learn a lot there, and if if you can go to read it, check it out. Let me know, or if there's something you'd like me to write about, let me know. Sure, maybe I can write about that too. So, well, listen, Kevin, I really appreciate you coming in today. It's been it's been fantastic. I've been I've been I've been wanting to get you in for a while, especially because well, because when I think of local investors who are in multifamily, you're the you're the really the first person that comes to mind because, like I said, Memphis is primarily known as a single family type it market, is. so. It is. Uh, I don't know too many local investors that kind of stick to a multifamily platform, so I'm really glad that you're able to come in. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, and it was uh, fun. Well, that was going to wrap up our episode here with Kevin Perk. Till next time, we'll see you then. This show was produced by Kurt Davis and KurtDavisOnline.com. All rights reserved. To reach Kurt Davis, you can find him on the web at www.KurtDavisOnline.com or email him at Kurt at KurtDavisOnline.com. Everything you heard on this show should not be taken as personal or professional advice. You should conduct your own due diligence. Opinions or comments of our guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Kurt Davis or KurtDavisOnline.com. 